All right. Welcome everyone to episode six of my podcast, the Nick Tasky podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Pran Yoganathan. Thanks for joining me, Pran. I'll uh, pass over to yeah, you and absolutely. you can introduce yourself. Yeah, absolute pleasure, mate. Um, so my name's uh, Pran, as, as Nick's just said. I'm a gastroenterologist, uh, which is a specialty, which I think a lot of people are aware of, but it's, it's fundamentally a, a specialty that encompasses the digestive tract or what's informally known as the gut, um, commonly known as the gut. So we, we basically deal with diseases of that. Um, it's been a very, uh, in, very eye-opening experience for me in my career as a 10 years uh, of being a, a gastroenterologist because I've realized something that one of my um, one of the forefathers of medicine Hippocrates said about 3,000 years ago he said all diseases begin in the gut and um, you know in my initial stages of the career I thought that that was a absolute mad saying but the further I get into it and the more experienced I get I realized almost every single modern illness that, that human beings suffer in our society probably has its roots in the gut so it's it's a great honor that that I'm in this field and hopefully I've had something for your viewers today. Yeah, cool. And as I understand it, you're also a hepatologist, right? Which means like you specialize in, in the liver too, or is that, does that go in conjunction with gastroenterology? Yeah, it does, Nick. Most okay. gastroenterologists are hepatologists, but there are some people um, that will subspecialize purely in hepatology uh, because the liver is a very, very complex or, organ system. So there are some people, people that won't do the procedures that most other gastroenterologists do and will purely focus on the medicine of the liver. They become physicians of the liver. But overall, we are general. Um, generally, we do we do cover the liver as well. Very interesting. One of the things that I think really excites me and, and probably a lot of other people about you is... Uh, what I think is is a newfound interest that I see in in agriculture and the soil, and uh, I've seen you post fairly regularly about uh, how you know all all disease begins in the gut, but all all health also begins in the soil, right? So I see you making a lot of comparison between uh, perhaps what we refer to as the soil microbiome and the gut microbiome. Are they pretty similar things from your point of view? Yeah, I mean we can let's break it down a little bit. And do you mind if I take it in a bit of yeah, a step? Yeah, sure. Back? To, we, we'll launch straight into it, you know, no, no formalities needed. Um, so the human gut is the interface where the soil meets meets the human being, basically. Now, people say, what, what do you mean by that? Now, think about what our gut does or what's the function of the gut. It's basically so we can consume food, right? Right? We, we eat the food and it meets the gut. 95% of our food comes from the soil what is grown in the soil, animals feeding on the soil, on plants that are growing there. So pretty much all food that we as human beings consume come from the soil. So a very simple way to put it is the gut is where the soil meets the human being. The soil is the most complex and diverse biobank of the microbiome that, that basically inhabits our gut. Our, we carry a microorganisms, fungi, bacteria, bacteria and various other things within our body, but the gut and the oral cavity have to be some of the most concentrated areas where the microbiomes carry. The colon in particular holds about 70% of the gut microbiome. The rest of it's sort of spread evenly between um, the small bowel and uh, the esophagus. So we the, the comparisons that I've made in some of the posts that you might have seen, Nick, is 
we are a reflection of the soil. We are a reflection of kind of, 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 of this farming system that we've recently developed, and we can talk about that. And, and our gut microbiome reflects what's going on in the soil and the environment around us. Now, the issues that I've had is as farming has changed to feed a modern way of uh, consumption of food and a, and a shifting culture around food, um, the soil microbiome, unfortunately, has changed as well because the inputs and, and so forth that goes into it. So our gut microbiome has fundamentally shifted. So these are the comparisons that I made. I've, I've linked the, the decay of the human gut microbiome, which then eventually leads to disease, to the decay in, in farming. And the decay in farming has come about from, from many, many reasons, but industrial large-scale farming aided by a very loose monetary policy, which which leads to corporate corporations rising and and um, gaining a market share or starting to dominate a market share, starting to consume the smaller companies that are that are up and coming, which fundamentally leads to a decimation of free market um, type processes where where smaller companies can challenge for a market share no longer happens. The big guy comes as like a shark and just consumes these smaller smaller fishes. So. The chance to innovate is 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 gone. Um, so we can't innovate anymore because um, because of this domination um, of of corporations in industrial farming. It's 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 interesting to me that you mentioned the like the degradation of the soil coinciding with the degradation of the gut, and it it sort of seems to me that a lot of people and and doctors in particular. Um, have just completely overlooked soil health. They're, they they couldn't be less interested uh, in you know in in the agricultural side of things. To me, that that doesn't make sense. But I I think what you know probably the most important point you touched on there was there's this massive disconnection between soil health and and human health, and and no one seems to seems to be paying any attention to it aside from uh, perhaps uh, the few and far between doctors like you. Yeah, I mean, in my field, I would certainly be considered um, somewhat of a quack probably by my colleagues. Um, but that's okay, Nick, because innovation kind of has to start one step at a time. It's little groups uh, that, that, are, that are not clinging on to the common narrative that's been paraded that, that spark innovation, that spark hopefully uh, sets up a flame that kind of consumes the, the old paradigms, burns that down to the ground and um, and reduces it to ashes. And from those ashes, hopefully new ideas spring forth, you know, new new ideas blossom um, and, and new paradigms are created. That's the nature of, of, of um, science. At the moment, the, the resistance to changing that is, as I said, we've got to take it back down to, to money. Corporations that got just a, a, an absolute uh, grip hold on that system, and that's why the system can't change. And why are doctors resistant to change? I think personality comes into it. We're, we're very, uh, we're built for compliance. A lot of doctors are, are great at following orders. Are they great at innovating and becoming creative? I think the system takes that out of them, whatever they start with, perhaps at the start of med school or even school, because, you know, becoming a doctor is not a, um, oh, I'll just decide to become a doctor after year 12. It's like, you know, almost that, that idea is planted in these kids at year three, year four, and then they strive towards, towards that goal um, to reach it. So 
I think they're very much geared for, for compliance from that perspective. So if you're a compliant person, you take take orders from the authority of the greatest, um, the, the greatest authority of that era, which at the moment is, um, what would you say that is? It, it's government. Problem is, uh, a lot of these government-based uh, guidelines, there's a lot of corporate influence there. And so there is really no room for a creative mind. There's really no room for for thinking outside the square because we are very much guidelines based. Uh, we we follow rules really well, um, and and we're uh, upset to we uh, we you know we're, we're loath to upset the apple cart. Therefore, um, no change really occurs, and that's that's probably why you you'll be wounded as to why more doctors aren't making the link. Um, but that is the nature of the beast. That is the nature of this industry. And you've got to realize it is an industry, not that the doctors realize it, but the, you know, I've made links to the military industrial complex war as a business. Therefore we will always have a war. It's the same with the pharmaceutical medical industrial complex disease as a business. Therefore we must always have disease to, to have disease. You need a broken agricultural and food system uh, that perpetuates disease. Um, and you throw in other things like a bit of a spiritual void and and, and so forth, and people disconnect from nature, um, the the you know florid use of antibiotics, all of this, and 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 you've got the stage set for an absolute uh, whirlwind of disaster, which is modern human disease. Mm. What would you say sparked your interest in in maybe going against the grain a little bit? Like, what was the what was the moment for you where you're like, holy shit, like things aren't right? <laughs> at least from my perspective? Um, look, I've always, um, I was always a strange kid, Nick. Um, you know, I've always had this sense that, you know, we're, we're, is this a movie? You know, is this, are we in a movie sometimes? Um, mm. And it's, you know, the movie, The Matrix really resonated with me because it was this sense of uneasiness as, is this reality? Truly is this reality? And, and I read a lot of physics um, growing up as a kid and even more so as an adult. And these whole ideas of, of, of the, the universe that is a holographic projection kind of is a, is a replayed uh, concept, not to get too nuanced, but what I started realizing is that we fundamentally exist in a setup that is basically there to keep humans in check. There is no, no real room for innovation and growth because that, that upsets uh, the natural order of things. And the natural order of things is, is very much a system that is dominated by a few market players. We live in a corporatocracy where corporations hold power or wield power over governments. So um, it, it, it's this sense, this sense of uneasiness um, at, 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 at existence that basis, basically started my pursuit into looking at, well, what is going on within health? Because, mate, let's be honest, when you've got autoimmune illnesses up 500 to 600% in, in 50 years, um, and, and my industry is putting that down to genetics or, or, or fitness influences putting that down to overconsumption of calories, that the calorie in, calorie out model is somehow being violated. That's where I've got an issue. So um, I felt compelled to step in um, to express my view, my humble view that, that hey, maybe there is other systems at play that, that, that are fundamentally um, driving human disease. Mm -hmm. It's, I, I, I've noticed you talk a lot about the pharmaceutical, medical, industrial complex as well. And, and to, to paint a picture for people who 
I guess aren't well versed in what we're talking about or, or who are just maybe just scratching their heads and saying, how are these things related? My understanding is that, uh, was it after the first world war, uh, when with the creation of with of 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 chemical bombs chemical fertilizers the the chemical factories they had to find the use for npk uh chemicals right and so the the next best use to keep those i guess profitable factories um in line was to send that off to farmers and and you know, I've, I've heard stories of, you know, farmers who uh, have appeared on, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast or many, many other other podcasts. Uh, you know, there's documentaries like Food Inc. and all these sorts of things where they're talking about the first time they saw NPK fertilizers applied to their land. And they're like, oh, my God, this, you know, the grass is growing so fast uh, in, in comparison to, you know, neighboring pastures. And it was it was just, a I, I guess, one of those things where no one asked any questions because it, it just appeared so, so good. And it, it came from the people in the white lab coats who were like, how great is this? Yeah, it's, it's a complex story, Nick. And it's at the end of world war two and I'll, I'll paint a world picture for your viewers. Okay. So, or your listeners, it's at the end of world war two or to into world war two. No one knew that world war two was going to end suddenly. There, there was, it, it raged on for, for a long time. Now, to solve the problem of feeding the troops, um, they needed to come up with food that would survive unrefrigerated for many, many months on end. Okay. So that the US government turned to American manufacturing to solve that problem. And they solved the problem. They came up with this food. Unfortunately for them, the war ended pretty rapidly, right? So they had months and months of product that had been churned out by various manufacturers, but no consumer base. So the, these, these companies went to government because they were all government subsidized companies. And they said, what are we going to do? We're, we're, we're going to go broke. So they come up, came up with a plan, which was that they were going to market this to um, the consumers or the American homemakers as something convenient, something efficient, something healthy and fashionable. And so the message was woven into everything from sponsored shows and and, and food advertising was virtually born. So cartoons like the Jetsons and Bewitched and all this sort of stuff, all that message was woven in and food advertising um, in, in the um, uh, in, in, on these TV shows as well. And so that's where food advertising was fundamentally born. So they had a huge uptake because people took it up. Oh, this is something that's been promoted, it's fashionable, we'll take it up. And from there on, mate, it was a race to the bottom because if the ingredients were now in the hands of companies and um, it was a race to the bottom bottom to, to see who can produce the tastiest product. So they knew exactly what they were doing and they hired chemical engineers to keep refining that formula till Americans are now eating 30% more sugar than they ever did or more now, 30 to 50% mm. more, uh, because we know that sugar is hyperpalatable, not only refined sugar, but they added in refined fats, you know, the canola oils and and so when the brain recognizes that as tasty, all very, very low protein meals. Um, but the scary thing about it, mate, is, is they they saw, they knew the effects, but they sought to suppress the consequence. And there is a lot of uh, data around the Sugar Research Foundation, which in the 60s and 70s starts paying off scientists to, to basically suppress it. So they sponsored Harvard scientists to basically promote the message in one of our most prestigious journals, which is the New England Journal of Medicine, that mm -hmm. sugar was harmful. And um, they they didn't even disclose their sponsorship in that study. 
So this study came out and, and it just slowly trained people to think, well, sugar's not the problem. We need sugar as an energy source. It is a fat. It's the fats. And that's what they did. In promoting these foods, they demonized foods that we'd eaten for millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years as, as modern human beings, such as the eggs, butter, red meat, lamb, beef, you know, kangaroo, venison, all these sort mm -hmm. of foods were demonized slowly that they caused heart disease and so forth. So people just became really confused about what to eat. Now, how does that relate back to fertilizer, which was your point, your original point? You see, the, this method of eating, which is this ultra-processed way of eating where foods come, food comes out of packages sold in bulk, requires a special type of farming. It requires something called the rise of mono, monoculture uh, farms. This is when you drive past a farm, you see row after row of the same crop. These are monoculture crops, you see, and ultra-processed foods and our desire for them had to give rise to these monoculture farms which lack diversity. They're, they're just a mono means one, and they're, they're just one crop of the same thing. Now, problem with monocrops is that they lack diversity, and diversity in a farm actually suppresses weeds and pests. So if you've got monocrop culture, then you have to bring in external weed and pest control, and mm -hmm. hence the birth of herbicides and pesticides and uh, whatever else they use to poison the animals that, that uh, eat on these monocrop farms. In addition to that, with that loss of diversity, because cattle and other ruminant animals weren't grazing through them and dropping their organic material into the ground, they had to bring in fertilizer. So these all ties up, ties into one. Ultra-processed food, monocrop farming, pesticides, herbicides, and um, um, and, 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 um, and, and fertilizer. This is the birth, the dystopia that has become uh, the monoculture uh, farming uh, that, that we now see. Mm -hmm. And then, so from there we see, uh, how would you describe it? We see problem and then solution, problem, solution. And so the, the solution to the problem of uh, weeds on your farm is to apply a herbicide. The solution to a problem uh, when you see insects eating your monocrop is to apply uh, pesticide. And, you know, the solution when, uh, we see a lack of diversity in so far as um, manure on the crop is let's apply a chemical fertilizer in the form of most most probably uh, NPK fertilizer. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's solution and problem. And how this leads to human disease after a while is if you've got this diseased soil that, that lacks diversity and the food is monocropped, it's, it's this rapid turn of a plant harvest back at it again. You know, like you continually take away from the soil. That's why you've got to add back in with this synthetic fertilizer, which <clears throat> reduces the diversity, simply mm. reduces the diversity. You know, agents such as Bayer's uh, glyphosate is a weak antibiotic. So over time, it basically erodes the microbial capacity of the soil, which uh, then gives rise to food that is less diverse. Animals that consume the feed uh, carry less diversity in the microbiome. Hence, that affects the health of the animal, and then we end up consuming this. So um, it has effects on us because over time we lose our microbial diversity. If we lose our microbial diversity, Nick, remember Hippocrates said, all disease begin in the gut. It all comes from a microbiome that's degraded, which gives rise to something we call dysbiosis, which over time leads to something called intestinal permeability, which is in, in, informally known in, in, in our circles as uh, leaky gut. And once you've got a leaky gut, you've just got free transfer of bacterial toxins, of, of chemicals in our food just being 
just crossing that that integral barrier uh, of the of the gut that that they shouldn't. Um, and so this is why we've seen this explosion in disease, in particular, a lot of these autoimmune illnesses, we believe, I believe, stem from poor farming practices. Um, and and they there's a huge burden of autoimmune illness in our community. And some of these drugs to treat them are $20,000, $30,000 a year, you know, to treat mm-hmm. some of the biological drugs. So there, there's this poor method of farming has sparked um, this, this, the rise of the pharmaceutical medical industrial complex. So really, uh, it's not the pharmaceutical medical industrial complex. It's the agricultural pharmaceutical medical industrial complex, which is a triad, a triangle. Uh, they're all interdependent on each other, and um, that that's the sad fact of um, of humanity's plight as we stand now. Is leaky gut? I, I I understand uh, you recognize the the condition, but how 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 broadly accepted is the condition of leaky gut becoming? Is it is it starting to become more accepted? Yeah, I believe so. I think intestinal permeability has now been demonstrated by um, uh, specialized endoscopic techniques that that are usually not used clinically. They're used more in research, but it's something called confocal endomicroscopy, which is where a microscope can be put down via an endoscope to look at the more microscopic or nuanced aspects of, of the gut. And you can see in real time uh, leakage of dye from, from the gut, inside the gut, into the cell, um, dye leaking. And um, th- so it can be demonstrated pretty quickly um, in, in human beings. There's no denying it, whether the doctor recognises it or not uh, is a different story, but but it does exist. And I think vast proportions of our population probably suffer it. Mm-hmm. Is there a standardised way to measure it? that is non-invasive. Um, there are some methods that have been proposed, but uh, they're not very standardized. So they're not commonplace, they're not widely used. And again, the recognition by a lot of clinicians, even gastroenterologists, I think at this stage will be still quite poor. It's an emerging concept, one that one that cannot be denied, however. Do you have, I, I know that uh, you train pretty regularly. I know uh, you train pretty hard, and and one of the one of the interesting side effects of of training hard um, is a leaky gut um, for a certain period of time. As I understand it, the 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 gut becomes more permeable. And so, is there a way that do you avoid eating after you train, or do you do you do you think of that as hey now's a now's a time where um, I'm going to take advantage of this leaky gut, and I'm going to consume something that could potentially uh, in, in a way of speaking, uh, benefit me while I've got this uh, greater gut permeability? Okay. It's a great question, actually, Nick. No one's ever asked me that. Now, do you ever see me running a marathon, Nick? Never. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, never, the tra- You'll never see me running one either. <laughs> so the endurance training is the issue, mate. That's, yeah, that's okay. what, what uh, leads to leaky gut. Um there's no real data that endurance athletes have better outcomes than the general population. Um, you know, some some endurance athletes won't like me saying that, but it's the reality of the matter. There's a few things that occur and there's probably quite significant um, um, reactive oxidation species from just overuse. The mitochondria kind of spro- spewing out this, this um, yeah, these, um, these, uh, horrible, horrible things that damage tissue, but we know that the gut does undergo a significant leaky period. Now, the, the basis for it is probably mitochondrial, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's a lot of reactive oxygen, uh, oxygen 
uh, species being being put out by mitochondria, but just because of the energies required to be generated during these endurance sports, um, potentially it might lead to a degradation of the gut. But the, the, the underlying mechanism isn't clear to me, but we know that overuse, hours and hours of exertion do lead to leaky gut. Um, this is why I think there's a Goldilocks zone for training, you know, 30, 40, 50 minutes, you know, 90 minutes even of weight training, I suspect is probably optimal. I tend to walk a lot as well as opposed to run. Um, sprinting might be a better option than, than running marathons, you know, like where, where you're exerting yourself um, over very brief periods and not putting your body under that that enormous uh, mitochondrial stress that, that tends to uh, accompany endurance sport. So, um, yeah, I, I, you just won't see me doing endurance sport. You might see me walking for hours, but uh, that's not something that that is hugely problematic for for the mitochondria. Yeah. Okay. That was that's kind of a question that I've had for for quite a while, and uh, it's it's I'm glad you've cleared that up for me that it's on the endurance side of things. I, I think most of the the literature uh, shows that you know that that there was once this idea that endurance athletics was like the way to go. It's like great for heart health and and all this sort of nonsense. And I think again uh, that was it was one the, of the um, yeah, listen they're, they're amazing athletes. Oh yeah, they, definitely. Athletes, yeah, you know, heart lung. Great, but um, you know, I just on a from a very um, you know almost a um, a rough example, we've seen athletes um, that have done endurance sports for years with huge amounts of calcium in their coronary arteries, so their coronary mm. artery calcium is very very high. Um, so why is that occurring? One has to ask themselves, and I, I suspect it's to to do with all that oxidative stress that they're putting themselves under. Uh, over a long period of time and endurance sport generally requires you training if you're going to do it seriously like training for a marathon or something like this you can't just train once a week or mm. twice a week you're you're training um, multiple times a week for long periods of time and uh, the body's like a machine there's a goldilocks zone you know like you you overdo it and uh, certainly there's a consequence for that and um, with weight training it's pretty difficult to do it's very difficult to overdo weight training some people do mm. uh, some people you know, utilize things like exogenous steroids to push past what is, what is you know, what is physiologically good um, and no, not having a go at those uh, people using exogenous steroids, but there's no doubt that there's adverse cardiac outcomes in those sort of populations. So it's it just comes down to anything else. Like there's a physiological thing that the body's designed to do, uh, pushing it beyond that physiological extremes, both in endurance sport or in weight training, utilizing uh, performance enhancing drugs, I think there's always consequences for that. You know, the, you can't you can't mess with nature like that unless um, uh, unless you're willing to accept the consequences of the sad reality. That's it. When did you start weight training? We're we're changing topics completely here, but uh, uh thanks, mate. Um, look, um, <laughs> I probably st- I was in uni pretty early, mate. Uh, I, I told you I was a strange kid, so. I was accelerated through school pretty quickly. I was in uni by about 16. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so I had a mate, and it's so funny. Um, he's a Sri Lankan guy, but he was this five foot four, some really solid unit, played a bit of rugby in school, and uh, he's always loved weight training. And he said to me in uni, why don't we, why don't we weight train? So I started weight training pretty early, 16, um, although I wasn't, 
I wasn't quite ready as yet. I don't think my body was quite ready. I didn't have the knowledge. Um, I paid very little attention to the lower body side of things, you know, very little in the way of squats and deadlifts is all bench press and biceps. You know how it is when you're- That's the way you got to start, bicep curls, bench press and tricep <laughs> extensions, right? Yeah, it's how you start. Um, I'd say it's probably, um, and I maintain that for years, but I think it'll probably be in my late 30s that I started lifting seriously. When I say seriously, I'm still just a, you know, I'm still, I'd consider myself a novice, but still, but, um, you know, the compound lifts with deadlifts and, and progressive load and really tracking that and tracking my food and, and squatting and squatting with depth um, and working on, on some of the squat or deadlift variants and doing all of that. Um, I'd say probably late thirties and I'm, I'm now into my early forties and I've been doing it a, a while and um, I find it to be an addictive exercise, you know, because mm. you're constantly challenging yourself and you're pushing yourself just to increase in those, you know, 2.5 increments every, every time. Yeah. And, you know, I absolutely love it. I can't see myself not training drive me mad and probably everyone around me mad if I didn't train. One of one of the things that I I think I've I've noticed in you and and I'm starting to notice in 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 maybe other doctors as well who are taking a similar route is it starts with a, a real development of you know you've you've worked on your mind and and you know the the brain is obviously very sharp in in a gastroenterologist or anyone who can achieve that level of uh, certification um, especially in medicine um, but what often happens is with many of these types of people and, and Stephen Hawking is someone who comes to mind. I'm not comparing you to him by any means, but the, the mind ends up leaving the body and, and we end up developing one side of ourselves in or to the detriment of, of the other. Have you noticed a, a benefit to, I guess, your yourself as a person or even to like your spiritual health as you've uh, delved more deeply into the physical side of things, perhaps as the, as the physical has caught up to the, to the mental. Thanks, mate. I, look, I think I said, I wrote some words down um, and I often share what I write down personally on, on my little blogs and Twitter and stuff like that. I think I said, no God ever uh, dwelt in a temple that was left to overgrow and uncared for. I don't be believe any soul can exist in a body that is uncared for or unkept. You know, we've got to truly hone our physical. No man or woman can be a novice in matters related to physical health. We have to push ourselves. We, we are we are we are tuned to that world where we come from, where we would lift things and move things with great, you know, great distances and, and great weight. Um, so that's that that's the world we come from. So we cannot deny who we are. And I think achieving that physicality is really critical in 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 turning that intuition into yourself and mm. allowing your intuition to grow. And from intuition uh, comes this deep respect for yourself and a more spiritual awareness that, that hey, you know, we, we're actually just all kind of connected, even though we've got this perception that that we, we're separate beings, but really the space between us hums with, with energy and vibrations and frequencies. And we're all, we're all in this big, big pot together and, and uh, I think once you've developed this respect, this healthy respect for yourself and a bit of a spiritual awareness, you you start extending that out to people around you, start developing this respect and love uh, mm. for people around That certainly helped me with my clinical practice because I'm excited to show my clients, like, this is the pathway to health. This is what I think 
um, achieves health, you know, working hard, uh, eating well, having a deep connection to your plate, having a deep connection to nature, having a high appreciation of something greater than yourself. I'm not saying you have to go out and be religious, but, but you know, this, this concept that we're all receiving one universal consciousness really appeals to me. And, and, and I think, um, really helps me from a, from a spiritual perspective and, and you need to be spiritually attuned if you're going to achieve health. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you're doing it for the aesthetics, that's one thing. I don't do it for the aesthetics. I, I, I do it so that, 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 that I, um, can mimic and replicate the movements of my ancestors. So, so my, my, my mind can work in a way that's sharp and, and I can be spiritually connected to who I am and my family and the people around me, my tribe, you know? And I think it all ties back to, you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, you know, this, this spiritual crisis in conjunction with a, with a health crisis. And I think what, what I see happening in, you know, from only from my own perspective is that as, as, uh, the, the whole, uh, triangular complex, as you describe it, the medical industrial pharmaceutical agricultural complex, uh, has become more scientific or more mental. We have, we ditched the, the spiritual side of things. And so as, as a way of, of, of getting back to health, uh, we, we have to become like more spiritual in a way. And, and again, not saying, you know, everyone has to adopt the same point of view or that, you know, you need to go and, and go on a pilgrimage or anything like that. But, um, I, I really see you sharing more and more of that stuff more recently, you know, sharing guys like, um, I, I know you're delving quite deeply into Jung at the moment. I, I gather that you're probably a little bit of a fan of, of guys like Jordan Peterson and those sort of people. Yeah. I mean, Jordan's, Jordan's fine. Uh, Jordan's good. But when you put him, uh, compare, compare him to people like Jung and Nishi, he really, and I think he'd be the first to acknowledge that really he's not on their level. Mm. Uh, not no disrespect to Jordan. I think he's fantastic. I love the work that, that, that he's done. Uh, helped a lot of uh, men worldwide, but but Jung was a brilliance that um, I think even Jordan Peterson himself described as almost scary. Mm. Um, it is scary how intelligent Jung was, and we've got to remember Jung descended into five years of absolute madness uh, to 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 write one of his um, phenomenal works, which is a red book, which really delves into what the psyche is and the collective consciousness, but. Some of those aspects that Jung and Nietzsche, in particular Jung, tackled were very much metaphysical, um, which is the world beyond the physical dimension. And what I'm talking about, Nick, really shouldn't blow people's mind because when you re really delve into the quantum realm, and I, I know you've had uh, guys like Jalal on your show, and he's a he's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, he, he blows my mind every day with some of the stuff that that he uh, shares. But when you delve into the quantum world, where you watch the way particles behave, it is clear that particles don't don't obey the rules of space. On that, they, they enter other dimensions, and we're 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 sadly with the human senses, we are adapted for reproduction and propagation of our species. We're not adapted to understand reality the way it actually is. Because if we saw reality the way it actually is, it would drive you mad. It yeah. would drive you mad. So I think spirituality is an acknowledgement of that, which is that which is that there is a reality beyond which I, my mind, my feeble mind cannot, cannot glimpse, but I'll pay respect to that because 
when you when you grapple with 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 concepts like space, time, and matter, it is apparent that space, time, and matter cannot exist without an observer. You you need to have an observer to be able to have space, matter, and time. So really, before the universe came into being, there had to be a consciousness for a for the, for these concepts to be generated. So you know what that where that leaves me, Nick. It leaves me humble. It leaves mm. me. Uh, it leaves me sort of really appreciative of this um, this this universe that we inhabit. Um, it is a projection. It is a it is almost a very sophisticated simulation that we we inhabit. Um, uh, and I believe there's more to human beings than just brain, heart, and uh, a body. I think there is something called a soul, which I think you touched on. And um, the pursuit of knowing one's soul, I think, is the spiritual exercise. You don't want to know it too well because um, I think our minds are too feeble to deal with it. But 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 we have to acknowledge it and uh, pay pay some respects to it. That that's the whole process of spirituality for me. Mm. Yeah, I. You know, uh, I, I, I've, I've seen or watched your interviews with the guys from Corrective Culture, Callan and Jake, and I think that was probably uh, where I, where I started to follow you a few years ago. And you know, one of, one of our mutual mentors, Paul Check, says a watch can never know its maker. And I don't know if he, if he was the one who coined that term or if he, if he took it from someone else. But that kind of really sprung to mind when you were talking about, you know, being unable to, to completely comprehend the reality of that we're living in. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Like, I don't know if you saw my post um, a while ago, but the fact that we even visually interpret colour and our brain interprets colour, colour doesn't exist. In reality, colour doesn't exist. It's just we're seeing a different wavelength of a, um, a different frequency of a wavelength that allows us to say, well, that's red, that's green, and our visual cortex interprets it. But, but the reality, if you just strip it down um, and, and the human eye wasn't part of it, Color doesn't exist, and it's all just frequencies and vibrations that we're we're kind of walking through this this soup of vibrations. And and when you start seeing the world like that, you, you start having a deeper appreciation for just just everyone, uh, animals, soil, uh, other human beings. And there's a there's an element of kindness I suspect that that springs from thinking like that. Whereas if you think of the world from a very much a space and a time and a matter perspective. What does that lead to? Uh, just look around us. We, we've got wealth concentration in the hands of many. We've got greed. We've got we've got millions that go hungry every year, billions probably. Yet there are a few in the world, a handful, maybe a hundred, a thousand people who who hold the vast majority of the world's wealth. Um, this is a this is an appreciation of space, time, and matter, but no appreciation of another person's soul. You know, if you truly appreciated soul, you. Your your heart will break for people that that go hungry. I think there is kind of just this one one collective um, hive. You've kind of completely broken up on me there. I'm not sure if I've if I've broken up on you at the same time, but um, Nick, yeah, yeah, I've still got you. Yeah, you just froze there for a minute. Are you okay. back now? 
Okay, very good. Uh, you cut out there at the end for me, but I, I think I got the the general idea of what you were saying. And uh, I think it was ending with, with uh, you know, sharing a, a hive mind or, or us all being a part of a, of a collective, which was very much a, one of Jung's concepts as well, I believe. Yeah, Jung, Jung, Jung's uh, concept uh, of, a, of a collective consciousness or a, or a psyche um, that we all have access to um, certainly was something that that he delved into and others have expanded upon since. And uh, modern day physics is starting to um, bring this to the forefront as well. Um, there's a great paper written by Professor Hoffman, which is a fusion of consciousness, which touches on this. So when science, philosophy, romance, all these things intersect um, is, is where reality is found. Reality is not the scientific rational thing um there's a there's a certain amount of mysticism that that we have to have as human beings because fact is stranger than fiction mm. there's a there's another saying and I, I don't want to just continue uh, continue giving quotes but i again another saying from jung was i think intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience um which is which is basically again what you're saying there so um, you know, thinking about things rather than actually experiencing them or, or taking action and, and, you know, completely ignoring the soul or the spirit side of things, which is, you know, that I, th I think that's one of the reasons why you have such a, such a large following, right? Because people are, people are feeling uh, what you're about and they're feeling, um, I guess, in a way, your soul, your spirit, so to speak, like you're, you're sharing far more or you're reaching pe people with far more than just, uh, Hey, this is how we treat leaky gut, or you know, come and get your um your colonoscopy or whatever it is that you know a, a regular gastroenterologist would say. No, I, I'm not after clients, man. Well, everything I do, I kind of just do it from my heart. I, mm. I'm a um, I'm a romantic at heart. I, I believe you know that the 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 we should appreciate um, some of the finer aspects, the romance of life, and mm. um, and think uh, to 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 wear your heart. On your sleeve and expose your soul that that's a courageous thing to do in this modern world where a lot of men um, in particular have been trained um, that no that's not something we should do but um, I think I think we should all express emotion and I think it's it's whether it's brought me up following it or not, I'm not sure Nick to be honest mm. uh, some of the stuff that I used to post which is more polarizing in the past gathered more more people. Uh, I think the latest content that I've been past posting for the last year or so, because my my approach to a change uh, probably doesn't attract as much as polarization. Like it's you find that people love polarization, they love yes. controversy, but but me posting on well, what is love really, or or what is the nature of this reality, doesn't seem to get the traction. But you know, they're good. There's good people like yourself that listen, and if a few people can take something away. From sees that light and happens to stumble upon it and resonates with with my words well good for them you know mm. i know we've only got probably a few minutes left um but you know what what do you see as the future of medicine where do you see things going in in perhaps your own career and and even like your own life um how do things have to change for, for things to get better?
Okay. Uh, sorry, you cut out there for a bit, but I think I got the gist of your question. How do things have to change to get better? Okay. So how do things have to change to get better? Well, we ha we're going to have to improve our health. Um, how do we improve our health? We're going to have to improve farming practices. How do we get away from some of these monocrop farms? We stop supporting ultra-processed food production, right? And we start putting our money towards these guys, the, the, the regenerative farmers, organic farmers, trying to do it well. We order meat from them. We order eggs from them. Uh, we grow our own vegetable potentially. We we go to farmers that are that are that are selling organic produce. We go to the farmers markets, put our money towards people selling organic uh, produce, fruits and vegetables. Uh, we we go towards organic grain, ancient grains that that are not genetically modified. We start putting our money as a collective um, to these things and let the free market take take hold. You know, the free market, if it was truly allowed to raise to to to, to um, if capitalism was truly allowed and the free market could could function properly um, these sort of businesses will boom and that's a positive uh, feedback loop we'll have more and more businesses springing up to compete um, and they'll just try and beat each other on on concepts and and this type of regenerative farming would, would just go up levels because they naturally compete but at the moment we've got corporatocracies We've got government guidelines that push people towards some of these nutrient poorer foods such as grains. We've got the promotion of monocrop farming. We have to get away from that. We have to get away from ultra-processed food and monocrop farming. They're both part of the same uh, side of the coin, of one coin. So this is my uh, mission is to bring awareness um, and then hopefully um, myself and other colleagues that are doing this in this space um, raise the awareness of the population enough that they themselves can take matters into their own hand and everyone starts illuminating their corner, we have a collective light. And that's what it's about. We've got to do it as a big team. Mm, very cool. And I, I think what you start to see as well is as the as the diversity in the soil increases, you know, the, the diversity in uh, opinion increases the diversity in what we can share with each other increases and you know the the greater the level of diversity that we can have which which begins in the soil which spreads to the gut um the the better things will end up absolutely nature loves absolutely loves diversity nature loves diversity and not the type of diversity that's promoted by um, corporations and so forth she just loves everything about a vibrant diverse uh, ecosystem and we're all part of that and we should promote diversity, but let, let's start with diversity of uh, soil, diversity of farming um, and, and embrace all the diversity that springs forth from, from that in our population. Very cool. Well, I think we've, we've probably reached our time limit here. Uh, where can people find you, Pran? I made, uh, my practice is in Castle Hill um, in Sydney, in Bridget, um, in, uh, in the Hills District in New South Wales. I'm active on Twitter, uh, just Dr. Pran Yoganathan. I'm active on Instagram and Facebook on these mediums. Uh, I think my message um, has been pushed out over, over, over the last three, four years on those mediums. So uh, I try and put something out every day, uh, post on my thoughts. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm humbled if people choose to follow and, and uh, read my content. It, um, it's uh, always nice to know that, that uh, you're putting out stuff that potentially might help someone. Mm. Well, thanks for joining me today. It's uh, it's uh, it's been a long time coming. At least for me, I've I've followed you for a while and I've wanted to talk to you for a while. So thank you very much.